Welcome to Cross Communities Podcast. We're glad you're here to listen today. We would love to connect with you today for listening to our podcast. Please fill out a connect card on our website at c3naz.net. You can also support the ministries of Cross Community by giving online on our website. We hope that today's message will strengthen your faith and help you to love God and people more. Pastor Jeff here, and if you're brand new with us today, I'm the lead pastor here at Cross Community Church, but I'm away on a sabbatical this summer. However, today you have the great opportunity of getting to hear Dr. Jeff Stark bring the message for us today. Dr. Stark currently serves as a professor of missional theology at Olivet Nazarene University, and he also is the director of the graduate school there at Olivet Nazarene University. Before that, Dr. Stark served as a soldier, as a student, as a theologian, and as a pastor in multiple roles at a few Nazarene congregations. But today, we're excited to welcome him here to Cross Community Church. And so, Jeff, thank you for being willing to step in and bring the word for us today. And we're excited to hear for what God has laid on your heart. Let's give a great Cross Community Church welcome to Dr. Jeff Stark. Even after you found out an Ohio State fan, that is Christian love right there. I see myself as a kind of missionary for the Buckeyes. Right? <laughs> oh, it's such a gift to be with you. Thanks for great color on a carpet, that's about it. I am so excited. You know, I was I was thinking about it, I was driving in. You know, when a pastor goes on sabbatical, there's a lot of preparation, a lot of plans that have to be made. And one of the things that stood out to me about the conversations that I had with with Pastor Jeff and 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 as I followed online, kind of what's been transpiring is that on sabbatical, he sets in motion a series on mission. I love that. I mean, now I, I am I'm a little biased. I'm a missional theologian. So I spent all of my time thinking about the church's posture to the world around it. But to think about what does it mean to, while the pastor is gone, invite the congregation to dream dreams about what the mission of God can look like in this place. Because that's what the mission of God is about. The mission of God isn't some sort of vision that comes from on high from a certain person that you've called or hired. The mission of God is what stirs around in our souls. The mission of God is what is shared across all the people of God in the congregation. And it is incumbent upon us to discern and discover in what ways and where does God want to use us in His mission. And so hopefully today, hopefully, that I'll give you some tools maybe, or some thoughts, or maybe just stir up your imagination a little bit about the ways that God might want to use you in his mission in this world. Let us pray first. Father, what a gift it is to be here today in Kalamazoo, Lord. What a gift it is to share with this congregation. Lord, I don't take these moments lightly. 
I know that these times are deeply meaningful. I also recognize that this is your time. It's your time where your spirit, wed with your word, meets your people in such a way that your purposes are fulfilled, which means I'm nothing more than a conduit. So Lord, I'm asking that in spite of my inabilities, inadequacies, and deficiencies, of which I have many, and all of which you are aware of, that somehow, some way, you might use me this morning to bring good news to your people. And that in the midst of that, something would be stirred and awakened and disrupt them so that they can say, aha, maybe even me in the mission of God. And when you accomplish this, which we know you can and will, we know who ultimately gets the glory. You and you alone. So it's in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, that all of God's people say, Amen and Amen. Well, in the story that I'm about to tell you this morning, I've got a little bit of a confession to make. And the confession is this, the, the her in the story that I'm about to talk to, I've, I've had on occasion treated her unfairly. Now I didn't intend that, I didn't want that to be the case, but, but I have found myself over and over again, even in my attempts to correct the issue, over-reliant on the assumptions that I had made about her, often which that had been handed to me by others who had talked about her. Have you ever had that happen where you have come to know a story so consistently and heard it told one way over and over again that really it's the only way you can imagine the story to be? And I think, unfortunately, for me and for her, that has been the case. Now, I might have told you she was resilient, if not a little helpless. I probably would have told you she was desperate. I definitely would have told you that she was shrouded in shame. And I probably would have alluded to the fact that she was in search of a white knight to ride in and rescue her from her despair. And, and I would have told you that she found it in this story. But then I met her again a few months ago. And I felt like I was meeting her for the first time. This time, instead of seeing immediate shame, I, I saw more suspicion. A little less helplessness and a little bit more grit of someone who had a few miles of road up under her tires. See, her story is found in John chapter 4. We call her the woman at the well, as though a single incident can ever be definitive of someone's life. Now, I've been accustomed to hearing her story told in a certain way, so I only ever imagined her as in this story, and if you don't know the story, we'll get to it, but in this story, I'd only ever imagined her as sort of like steeped in shame, sheepishly and mildly sort of shuffling to the well. That's how I, I saw her. But then I, I met her again, and I began to realize that she probably looked a lot less like the sheepish shuffling and more like some of the women that I'd grown up around. Maybe you grew up around them too. The kind of woman who had the cigarette dangling from the corner of her mouth, whose hair was put up in that 
blend of a cheap perm and a too much aqua net to hold it in place. Y'all know which ones I'm talking about, right? The kind that on their best day says, the look on their face says, I'm not impressed. And on their worst day says, don't even try me. (laughs) Y'all know who I'm talking about. She was bruised and battered by life and wasn't about to play the role of fool. So when she all alone stumbles upon Jesus at the well, who according to John's gospel was in a place that he should not have been, Samaria, because that's not a place that good Jewish men go to, you can imagine that she's probably not sheepishly shuffling. She probably sees Jesus and does one of these. Who is this fool? See, I mean, we come to discover her story. And I should have known this all along. Jeff, this isn't her first rodeo, right? Life had tested her. She's not going to stride into some vulnerable situation as some damsel in distress without first surveying the landscape and trying to assess what was in front of her. She's suspicious of his presence regardless of his intentions. And let me just tell you, the burden of proof lay on the shoulders of Jesus. Because she's not going to put herself out there. In fact, she's put out because he's in the way of her normal routine. There's a reason why she came out to the well in the heat of the day by herself at a time when you don't go to wells in the Middle East because she's trying to avoid folk like him. And she really wasn't about to buy into any news that was too good to be true. Because she had tried that and it had failed her over and over and over again. So when she strides up upon Jesus and he asks for a drink, let's listen to this story. John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So when he's asking her for a drink, suspicion is her response. I think she's standing there saying, What's your agenda? Why me? Why now? Who's this? And what is this all about? Because I think even regardless of our intentions, when we approach people with what we believe to be good news, it's often met with suspicion. So for three years, I lived in the heart of the city of Chicago. I pastored for about uh, 18, 19 years, and I had been called to Olivet to serve on faculty. But I told him I couldn't just come to all of that. I also had to do the work of God, the mission of God. So my wife and I, we moved into the heart of Chicago after becoming empty nesters and we settled into. And, and what I discovered very quickly, you know how when you, uh, when you as a pastor move to a different church, like there's this group of people that are eagerly waiting for you to receive you and to welcome you. You know what happens as a pastor when you move into a city of 2.7 million? No one cares. I can assure you that. And so, 
not having a congregation and no one excited to see me there, I woke up one morning, uh, the first morning that we were there, and I, I knew that I had to go to the well. I had to go to the well. I had to go to the well. Uh, I had to go to the well, but I couldn't go to the well flying the I'm a pastor, the good news is here flag. So, I, I, see, I grew up, and I was, we'll talk about my story in a minute. I wasn't uh, connected to the whole Jesus story, so I felt like entering into the city of Chicago was like entering into my people. And I knew that the, the overly rambunctious and eager pastor comes in, and people are like, dude, back off. So I knew that I was going to have to go incognito, right? So I just, where's the well? You know what the wells are, right? The wells are the places in life where we live, work, and play, where people's lives intersect, where they connect. The wells are the place where we do business. It's the crossroads of life. The wells are the places in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, where we as Jesus people are sent. Did you hear me say that? The wells are the places in our communities where we as Jesus people are called to go. Can, can I, at the danger of being a little blasphemous this morning, t- tell you something about this story? It's always a little, when pastor says that. So before this woman strolls up to meet Jesus, there's another verse in verse 4 in this passage. And he, here's what the verse says. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Can I just tell you? That's not true. At least not in a geographic sense. See, in a geographic sense, Jesus, who was coming from the southern part of Israel to the northern part of Israel, with Samaria in the middle, it says he had to go through Samaria. Actually, that's not the case. Because there was a well-worn road around Samaria that most Jews went in order to get from the south to the north. So you didn't have to go through Samaria. But the text says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. There's only twice in the Gospels where something says that Jesus had to do it. And both of them seem to connect, not by geographically being compelled by something, but being compelled by the heart of the Father. Jesus had to go through Samaria, because that's where the heart of the Father drives Jesus to go. It drives Him into those places that otherwise would have been deemed off-limits. Jesus had to go to Samaria. Because the love of God, the character of God, the heart of God drives us, compels us into the places like Samaria. Which means if Jesus is the master and I'm an apprentice of Jesus who's trying to pattern my life after Jesus, that means that my waking moments of the day are to be lived in such a way that I am open to when I have. To go to Samaria. When I have to go to the wells in the places that good folk like me typically don't go to meet people like her. I have to go because when I go, even though I would try to avoid going, when I go, something about the goodness of God shows up in the going. 
So I knew I had to go to the wells. But I knew in going to the wells that I, I wasn't to assume eager re- receptivity because the burden of proof always lands on our shoulders as Christians. And I know your intentions. You go to the well and you're eager to go to the well and you want to go to the well because you know people at the well and you want them to get the good news of what they should receive at the well and you show up and they're not impressed and you get your feelings hurt. It, we do that, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a missionary of Jesus and then someone like cuts you off and you're like, tried that. Them, those folks are not nice. I knew that that would be the case because people's interaction with people like us hasn't always been positive. For some, their experience of what we call good has not been so good, which has meant for some really strange stories of encounters at the well. And we have to deal with those. Now don't get me wrong. I don't want to make it sound like I don't think that what we bring and what we have to offer is good news. I think the story of Jesus is the best news that could be told. It's the greatest story, right? It's a story that says this. The kingdom of God in heaven is breaking into the earth. This is what Jesus says. The kingdom of God is at hand. The space where God gets God's way has disrupted the status quo, has broken into the world. And you know what that means? That means that people who have been afflicted and harmed and wounded by life can find restoration and healing for their souls. That means that those who have been left out can be let in. That means that the insidious forces of evil have been challenged and at times thwarted. That means that the least, the last, the lost, the broken, the battered, the weary, and the wounded can find healing for their souls. And friends, that is really good news. That's the good news we get to come with. See, that's the, that's the news I, I heard. I was 25 years old when I became a follower of Jesus. Coming out of a background of heathen, alcoholism, atheism. I mean, I had all the isms. And when I was deployed with the United States Army in Macedonia, I met Jesus in a powerful way in a little chapel, midnight. And it wasn't the fear of hell that compelled me in that moment. It was the promise of restoration that I heard from the Spirit of God in those moments. It was the good news that, Jeff, I can make your life and that train wreck of a marriage that you have, I can make those things whole. And I yielded to it. And a month later, my wife yielded to it. And God began to fix the train wreck of a marriage that we had. And then he dropped us right in the middle of this church. I had no... So my, when I came back from deployment, my wife said, we got to find a church. I said, of course, we got to go to the church where God is. And she goes, we got to go to that Nazarene church where I got saved. And I said, a Nazarene what? I had no idea what a Nazarene was. But God deposited us right in the middle of a bunch of good newsers. And we found ourselves surrounded by people who believed that this message was good and they couldn't stop talking about it. But then I realized, as I continued to mature in my faith, that no matter how good we've assumed this good news to be, 
we've not always made the good news out to be as good as it is. And we've got to reckon with that, don't we? See, I think sometimes we've made the good news not so good because we've wrapped the kingdom of God in our own political banners. Ah! We told people in order to participate in our good news, you have to pass our political litmus test in order for you to be deemed acceptable by us. And I don't care what side of the aisle you live on, we both do it. Because, of course, Jesus is on our side. Right? When we do that, we make the news of God's kingdom and a new Lord who's not Caesar, not so good news. Then sometimes we've, we've, and I think sometimes we've done this unwittingly, but I think sometimes we've done this incredibly wittingly, is that we've made the good news seem like it's good to some or a lot or maybe most, but not all, because there are some that are so far gone, so far out, such a lost cause, that there's no way that God could reach them that far gone. And when we tell that story, that's not such good news either. And sometimes we've ignored the blatant issues that our neighbors face, those who have a lack of resources or opportunities, who have been treated like second-class systems, citizens based on some arbitrary, arbitrary category we've assigned them. And when we show up, they, they've, they've said, where were you the whole time? And sometimes that's not good news. And then there's been the, those who have been wounded by toxic church cultures. Those, those who have felt like the church has been more concerned about the product it's trying to sell than the people it's trying to reach. Those whose lives have been marked within the church by discouragement, neglect, and abuse. They've been dismissed and shamed, sometimes rejected simply because of the questions that they wanted to ask or the doubts that they wanted to raise. And you put all of that on top of the lives that have been shattered by unjust and unfair circumstances, by traumas and tragedies that have continued to pile up and rack up in people's lives, and you show up and say, I've got good news, and they said, yeah, I'm not buying that because I, there is no too good to be true for me. This is what we encounter. This is what we enter into if we're going to take seriously going to the well. See, when you and I go to the well, we are received with suspicion. What now? Why me? Who are you? What's your agenda? And what is all of this really about? It's what I love about Jesus. Because Jesus enters into that very same circumstance. The weight of the suspicion has been placed on his shoulders and I find so beautifully compelling the way of Jesus in these moments. See, in the face of suspicion, Jesus evidences the kind of posture in his life, the kind of presence in his life that provides space for the good news to grow and to emerge. See, my friends, that's what a good newser does. 
They know, a good newser knows down deep with such conviction that the news is unquestionably good, but it takes time to cultivate the soil of our connections, to sow the seeds of love and trust, to water with grace and compassion, and to fertilize with empathy and peace before it blooms. That's what a good newser knows. So what's the presence and the posture of Jesus in a time like this? So the Jesus way starts with, and this is going to sound absurdly obvious. Like It's the kind of thing that when you hear it, you're going to go, and they pay you to do this for a living? The first thing is, Jesus shows up. Ta-da! And I know that sounds so obvious, but for most Christians, it's not. There's an intentionality that this requires of us. A willingness to yield our hearts to the direction of the Spirit that takes us into places we're most apt to avoid or where we stop being so busy criticizing and condemning people for the way they live and instead of, sh- instead of showing up and bringing our whole selves and who we are into those space just to build deep connections and relationships with them. A good newser has to go to the well. A good newser has to find where lives connect. A good newser is someone who takes seriously that it's at the crossroads, the junctures of life, where people's lives are bumping up against one another, that we have to show up, settle in, and be present. Where's your, where's your well? Where are you showing up? Where are you going on purpose with your whole self? To whom is God right now beginning to stir to say, I've got to send you to those people at the well. Where do you got to go? So that's the first part. He shows up. The second one, and I love this, this is actually one of my favorites, is that Jesus shows up expecting reciprocity. Let me explain what I mean by this. We as Jesus followers have a tendency that when we go, we don the Jesus cape, you all know how it goes, and we swoop in to save the day. Right? We do that. Jesus shows up, and you know what he does first? He asks her for what she has that he doesn't. He believes that he's not the only person bringing something into this relationship of meaning and value. He actually believes that she has value. This is, I think, huge. What if we believe that even before a person realizes that they've been stitched together by God in their mother's womb, we've believed that they've been stitched together by God in their mother's womb, and that they already have something meaningful to contribute to my life. Instead of demeaning or diminishing everything about them until they get saved, we begin to affirm how God has already formed and shaped them, and what He's already been doing in them, even before they realize that we actually have a word for that in the Nazarene faith. We call it provenient grace. The grace that goes before people even realize grace is present. And all of a sudden, we begin to expect that there's some sort of value added to my life by simply being in relationship with them. I think that's pretty cool. Can you imagine the way that that builds connections and relationships? 
So he shows up, he expects reciprocity, and the third one is, he's aware of the moments when he can hint at the good news in appropriate ways. Now listen, I am passionate about evangelism. I know it's probably hard to tell, I'm passionate about evangelism. And un- unfortunately, over the years, what that has translated into for the church is that when someone comes to talk to you about evangelism, they, they come with this canned approach or this sales pitch. And they give you the tool, and then they send you out to go do it. And so we show up with our canned pitch into someone's life. We've not heard them, listened to them, heard their voice, their story, or their brokenness, and we just confront them we got something to give you. we got something to tell you. What I love about this is there's a dance of conversation that happens in the story. I want to invite you to go home and just hang out in this story for a couple days. There's a dance of conversation that happens here. Can I get something to drink? Who are you asking me for a drink? Where's your bucket? Are you greater than, than, than our father Jacob? Like there's this whole dance. And then Jesus goes, if you knew who was asking, you'd be asking me for a drink. And she's like, what are you talking about? And then he's all about just living water. Like he's hinting at it. Like we have to be able to step into people's lives and listen carefully. Because when you do, there's going to be these moments where good news will bubble to the surface. And you'll be able to dole it out in ways that can be received, stewed upon, spent time with, and that cultivate further questions. And then I love what happens in this story. It gets awkward. So if you've not read the story in a little while, it gets really awkward. If you've not read the story at all, it gets super awkward. So, so she's like engaged in this conversation, and, and she's asking all these questions, and Jesus is like, go get your husband. She's like, ah. about that. She says, I'm not married. He goes, I know. You've had five. And the one you're with is not your husband now. Now, this is where I was unfair to her. This isn't a 21st century story. See, Jesus is curious about her life without condemnation because he knows there's always a backstory. So you've got to understand, we turn her into a 21st century person. She's one of those women. Can I assure you, in a culture where women were not in charge of themselves, that she was not one of those women? She would have been subject to an arranged marriage on the front end, probably to a much older man who probably died, number one. Then she would have been passed to his brother, who was not married, who might have found her displeasurable. And because she had no right over herself, he could have issued her divorce decree, number two. And if you continue to play out her story of the ways in which she would have been exploited through a system not designed for her, you arrive at the sixth one and the kids, knowing that she would have been the inheritor of his estate, probably would have said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not getting married to him. So Jesus knows that her story is not a simple friends. When we go to the wells to meet the people that God sends us to meet, no matter what their lives look like, they're probably not as simple as we want to make them out to be. 
We've got to become curious without condemnation. We have, to, we have to develop what I call a really, really low ick factor. Instead of like showing up and seeing people's lives that are broken, because they're, of course they're broken because they're not with Jesus, instead of us going, yeah, right? Because we have that reaction. <laughs> You're living like that. Instead of doing that, maybe it's like, tell me more. Help me understand. And then I love what happens next. This is great. I've been, so I've been a pastor long enough to see this kind of thing happen. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on the mountain, but Jesus claims that the place where, or the Jews claim where the place we're supposed to worship is in Jerusalem. I love this part because, like, I've been a pastor long enough to know that when you start diving into people's lives and getting into the, uncompl- the uncomfortable, complicated places, they immediately want to go all theological on you. Let me, let, let's, can we talk about the Trinity right now, please? Right? Like, I love it because Jesus is having none of it. Like, like, if she's trying to distract the conversation, Jesus, you know what I love is that Jesus doesn't get offended when she, when she challenges his theology. You know, we, we would do really, really well if we would stop wearing our theological emotions on our sleeves and feeling like we have to defend God at every cross. Hey, can I just, can I just free you up today? God's been doing what God's been doing for a really long time. And that person who's on your Facebook wall that's calling him into question is not the first to do so. We don't have to lose our mind on him. Because God's really good at getting God's own back. All we have to do is bear witness beautifully to his good news. And that's compelling enough. So he's not going to get into this argument with her. Instead, he's just going to speak truth to her in a way that is, is not, it's not shaming, is not intrusive, but is inviting. And then the last thing I think Jesus says, he's clear about his message. And I, I want you to know there's going to come a point when you go to the well and you've been in relationship with someone and conversations have bubbled to the surface and you've displayed curiosity and you've fielded those questions, there's going to become a moment when there's clarity is necessary. And this woman says, there's going to come a time when the Messiah, the Chosen One, is going to come. And Jesus goes, I'm he. I'm here. (laughs) And I love the story. She's like, wait here. Sets down her bucket and like takes off. Jesus is like, ah. (sighs) Happens to me all the time. Because when she hears the good news and the clarity of his message, she couldn't help herself but to run off and... I'll come back to that in a minute. See, there's something about the life of the good newser. Good newsing requires a posture and a presence that disarms suspicion through patience, builds trust, extends empathy, and demonstrates love consistently. So, on the first morning, my wife and I moved to the city on May 21st, 2019. First morning in the city. I woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning. I mean, boxes are still in our little... We we had moved from about a 2,400 square foot parsonage to an 800 square foot condo. So, boxes are like... And I'm up at 6 o'clock, and she wakes up and looks at me, and she says, What are you doing? And I said, I'm going to the well. So where are you going? She says, I'm going to the coffee shop. Because there's a coffee shop two blocks down from us. So I, I grabbed my books and I went down to the coffee shop. 
And I sat down at a little table at the coffee shop. And I laid out my journal and I laid out my Bible and I sat there and I prayed and I read my Bible. And I was about 6.30 in the morning. And by 9 o'clock in the morning, I had like 15 people around me that were asking me all these questions about Jesus. No, that didn't happen at all. I'm just joking. (laughs) I sat there all morning and no one cared that I was there. No one. I sat there. So you know what I did the next morning? I went back. And the next morning, I went back again. And I was working remotely at the time, so I, I found myself going back over and over and over again every morning at the same time. And here's what I found. Even in a city of 2.7 million, people are creatures of routine. And there were regulars walking into that coffee shop. And I remembered when I first felt like I had arrived. I started to get the head nod from the regulars. Like I sat in the same table every time. You all know what the head nod looks like, right? Like I'm sitting there and I'm working and there would be a regular who I'd seen like multiple times and they like look over to you and they're like... And I was like, I think I'm liked. And then there was my friend Alyssa. Alyssa, I, I noticed her, she'd come in many, many mornings, such, much like I did. Only, she had a much different posture than I did. I had my book bag with my coffee and my journal and the books that I was reading. She had two children under three that she was trying to wrangle. And so she comes in and she was like flustered, but also so incredibly kind and friendly. And she knew everybody. We ended up calling her uh, the mayor of Armitage, which is the road that we lived on, because she knew everybody. And, and finally one day, as I had we had given each other the head nod a few times. She just finally comes over to me and she says, Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> and I, being knowing where I came from and knowing a little bit about the city of Chicago, I'm a little less apt to go, Well, I am an evangelical pastor who teaches other people how to do pastoring. I say, Well, I teach the convergence of religion and culture, which I do, because it creates a conversation. She's like, oh, that's interesting. I'm an atheist. And I said, well, hello. And that was literally how she let out. I'm not interested in things of faith. But man, was she cool. So she and I became friends, and and I became really good friends with her husband, Ryan, and my wife and I became good friends with the two of them. And we would sit in the coffee shop. We were getting together pretty consistently. Um, they were just dynamic individuals. She was at one point uh, listed among the who's who's of under 30s in Australia where she's from because of her work that she was doing with people with disabilities. Like she, and this, this is how cool they were. They were, they were consistently telling me regularly, hey, we're not always interested in things of faith. We're, you know, we've come from an atheist background. They chose as the godparents for their kids two Christians because they wanted them to have a well-rounded experience in life. Like, these are the kind of people. And so, like, we would get together, we would hang out, we'd have these great conversations, and then she would remind me, hey, I'm not all that interested. And yet then I would get a call one day, and she said, well, Ned and I were walking through the neighborhood, and there's this beautiful, beautiful Catholic church in our neighborhood. Huge, beautiful church. And she said, Ned, Ned stopped me, and she says, Mom... What happens in there? And I, I, she said, and I told him, you're going to have to ask Uncle Jeff on that one. <laughs> and so we built these, and then COVID hit, and COVID shut down my coffee shop. 
but it doesn't shut down relationships. So my wife and I, who had freedom to do what others couldn't do, we had a group of friends of ours who had kids, so we would go donut runs, and we'd go get takeout donuts, and we'd drop them off at their front doorstep, and, and then we would leave so that they could have donuts, and then we would do these corner coffee dates. There was like, I don't know, there was a half a dozen of us that were always together at the coffee shop. So we'd meet on a corner, we'd get our to-go cups of coffee, and we'd stand on the corner, six feet apart, um, this was Chicago and everything was super intense. And so we're standing there and we're, we're drinking coffee, having connections. And then the summer came and we got a phone call. And she said, hey, would, would you and your wife want to come over for dinner? I said, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So she had us over for dinner and we showed up to have, uh, have drinks, non-alcoholic for me, and charcuterie board. Y'all know what charcuterie board is? Yeah, my grandma used to call that a meat and cheese plate. <laughs> but it's a thing. So we went and had charcuterie board. And we're sitting around there and we're telling stories and we're laughing. We're having a great time. And then Alyssa innocently asked, she says, hey, Jeff, how did you and Angie meet? Well, Angie and I have a really broken, messy story. And so... So I, as I begin to tell her our story, I can't tell our story without telling the part where we came to faith. Because if we didn't come to faith, we wouldn't have had a story to tell. Because that's where we were. And so I get to the part about faith, and I said, and this is where we became Christians. And then I backed off, because I'm in their home, and I don't want to press the issue. And, she, and I'm about to move on in the conversation, and she says, Stop! Right there. And I was like, oh no, I said too much. She looks at me and she goes, tell me that. How does an atheist alcoholic become a Jesus follower? I want to know that. This was over a year after she and I had first met each other. We're in her house. And she valued our friendship so much that she now invited me to share something that was deeply meaningful to me. And there was no canned pitch. There was no sales job. But she gave me permission. Permission. In the midst of all the suspicion, she gave me permission to spend the next 30 minutes talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of that, there was no profound moment where she knelt at the couch. But she leaned back and she said to me, Jeff, I grew up in a setting where we don't even have categories for what you just, what you just explained. Like we don't, we don't think or talk in those terms. I don't know what you're referencing. But whatever happened to you, I think it would be pretty cool to have happened to me someday. And all of a sudden, that seed was, was watered a little bit more. A relationship that they've gone back to Australia and my wife and I have since moved and we still stay in contact. And, and I don't know what God has in store, but all I know is that in those moments, it became so real and beautiful and bubbled to the surface, not because of anything that I did, except for that I just took Jesus seriously and just started showing up. This woman, she leaves, the, she leaves her bucket. 
she runs back to the very same people that had once dismissed her and demeaned her and cast her aside and said, I have found some really good news. Come out with me. Come out and meet him. Friends, the mission of God is is about becoming overwhelmed with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. It's about believing that what God has done in you, God wants to do through you and for others so that they can get caught up in this same good newsing movement that you've been a part of. But it takes time and intentionality. And you've got to pay attention and you've got to go to your well. So here's my question for you this morning. Where's your well? Where's your well? Where do you need to go? To whom do you need to be sent? It may be family members. It may be where you live, work, play. It may be someone in your neighborhood. It might be that neighbor. You know which one I'm thinking of right now. But whose life do you just need to start showing up consistently in? Because when you do, the good news bubbles to the surface. And beauty happens. Father, I don't know where everybody is today and what their stories are but I know what your story is and it's good. And I'm praying, Lord, that we would receive that good news today with a commission to go to the wells, the crossroads of life, and to share that good news with others. Help us, Father, to lean into that good news in ways that is beautiful and transformative and meaningful and glorious. And I'm thankful for my friends, people who I met at that coffee shop, people whose whose lives had something to to bring to my life the reciprocity, the impact that they've had on me, even as they've allowed me at times to share the good that God has done for me. And Lord, you do, you do what you do with the rest of it. Because you're much better at doling out your grace than I am forcing your grace on anyone. So Lord, be faithful with us, to us, and through us as we go out into this world on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Amen. Wow. it's a lot I will be thinking about and praying about for a while. That's a, that's a really good word for us. Thank you, Dr. Stark, for being with us today. Where are your wells? Where are our wells? Where do we need to go? I wrote down and I circled and underlined intentional three, four times. This is good news for all, right? But it doesn't happen on accident. And God has called us. Are we compelled to go? Are we compelled by the heart of the Father to go to our world, to the places where he needs us to go, where he needs us to show up, where he's already working? What a good word for us this morning. What a good God we have who's invited us to share that good news. Thank you for sharing with us this morning. Of course, this week is VBS, uh, so we want to remember that. Those of you who are sticking around this afternoon uh, to help set up for that. Uh, And then next Sunday is our VBS Sunday, so you want to come back next week and celebrate with us the amazing week that we're going to have with our kids. So don't miss that. Uh, But I want to invite you this morning to go ahead and stand with me, and I'll send you out with blessing as we go. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and his peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you go in his peace. Thanks for being here this morning. Join us next week. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Cross Communities Podcast. We hope you will join us next week.